Hi, Neil. Hey, Gwen. What's up? Well, we're going to uh, get started with part two of our summer reading series. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, uh, do you have a favorite city book? A uh, favorite book about Toronto or another Canadian city? Could be fictional, nonfiction? Well, you know, uh, a number of years ago, I read a book uh, by Timothy Finley. Mm -hmm. It's called Headhunter. And it was, it was set in Toronto and featuring a lot of locations that I know, I've walked by, I've uh, been a part of. And it twists the city into, uh, into almost a mythic place with uh, strange happenings and intrigue and interest. It's, it's a good one. Okay, I should check that out. I've been reading uh, Sean McAuliffe, uh, Spacing Senior Editor, Sean McAuliffe's uh, book uh, Frontier City. And uh, I really enjoy it because uh, he sort of walks us through uh, parts of Toronto that, as someone who's sort of stuck in the downtown core, I, I don't get to explore a lot. Um, and uh, sort of lays out the, um, the political landscape that we're dealing with and have been dealing with for the last sort of approaching eight years, uh, which I find interesting, but also just kind of challenging me to go and explore my city and uh, enjoy parts, uh, you know, to sort of get out of my little bubble because it is tempting to sort of stay in the neighborhoods that you know with the bars and the stores and the uh but let me ask you like you know talking about this book that you enjoyed does it does it make a difference to you that it is set in toronto does it sort of change the way you uh enjoy the story yeah i think it makes the book more intimate and um relatable and even if it is completely wildly fictional it takes place in a world that you understand and that you know and uh, it puts you right beside the characters. Yeah, I recently finished a, a, an older book uh, written in the 20s uh, about sort of the Jazz Age Prohibition era of Toronto called uh, Strange Fugitive. And it was kind of eerie because at one point I was reading the book on the street corner that the character was actually walking past it <laughs> at that point in the book. So uh, it, it was almost this kind of like haunted in a good way sort of feeling. So. I can put myself into any story, you know, it's the power of imagination, but there really is something special about reading a book that's set in your city. And so uh, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, we are going to take you to uh, a few more books as part of this series. So we might as well get started off with the classic, This is Spacing Radio. We are back at the Broom Closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. It's hot in the studio, so we're going to get right to it. In this episode, we sit down with two of the editors from Any Other Way, How Toronto Got Queer, recently nominated for a Toronto Book Award. But first... Back in the 1980s, journalist and Toronto Historical Board member Patricia McHugh compiled a compendium of architecture comprising our city called Toronto Architecture, A City Guide. Safe to say a lot has changed since the second edition of that book, published in 1989. In steps Globe and Mail architectural critic Alex Bozakovic, who has updated the guide to reflect a modern, amalgamated Toronto, whose architectural offerings have grown up and outward. We spoke with Bozakovic about how he undertook updating the guide. Stand by. <laughs> So first, can you, can you tell me a little bit about what this book is? Well, it's a set of walking tours that covers the city, starting from the 
red brick downtown and moving right out into the modern high rises of the suburbs. It covers more than a thousand places in the city, mostly buildings, but also streets and landscapes and urban design. It's really meant to be a, a, a strong but comprehensive introduction to the way the city has been built. And can you tell me a bit about your uh, your co-author uh, since passed away? But, uh, she she seems an interesting figure, kind of a, a Jane Jacobs like uh, figure in, in the way that she challenged people to think about neighborhoods and and the surround you know their city as it builds up around them. Yeah, Patricia McHugh, who wrote the first and second editions of the book, uh, was uh, an American born in Southern California, and she came here uh, with her family in the early seventies, having already lived in New York and London. Uh, and she became passionately interested in Toronto and in its architecture and in its history. Uh, but she also brought an outsider's perspective that I think was really useful, particularly at that point in time. Um, she was able to sort of look at the city and understand what was distinctive about it, uh, what was interesting about it, and really to um, celebrate, as other people were doing, the um, the virtues of the of the old city and of the, the walkable city and uh, sort of think about how that came to be. And so you, you begin the introduction with a question, what is the story of Toronto architecture? It's hard to reduce it to just one thing, uh, of course. That's true for any city, but I think it's particularly true for Toronto as well. Toronto is really two cities. It's There's the 19th century city, uh, the Victorian Toronto, a lot of which is still here with us in this central part of the city. And then there's the modern city that grew up around that in the 1950s. So in what's left of the Victorian Toronto and Edwardian Toronto, you have narrow streets, you have narrow lots, uh, and you have, in a lot of cases, a very good, if modest in scale, uh, architecture that is all about uh, working in a very consistent set of materials. Um, you know, the buildings are wood frame, you have uh, a lot of use of local brick, which is really the classic Toronto material, you know, good stonework. Uh, but those things are, um, you know, it was really a city of houses, factories, schools, and churches. Uh, and what you see after that, after the Second World War, uh, from the 1950s onward, is that the city grew outward. And you have this second city, which is a city of car-oriented suburbs, much larger than the old Toronto. Uh, and that city is, again, full, mostly full of people's houses, but it also uh, brings a different scale uh, of the the car scale of of city building. So with that city, you get also um, you get new buildings and a new scale of buildings, uh, including the uh, clusters of apartment towers, which are um, very unusually in North America, clusters of apartment towers that are scattered through the suburbs uh, and which are you know also very much a distinctive part of the city. And uh, and with that post war uh, design as, and the planning principles that came with it. Uh uh, out of that comes uh, some some questions of equity now at this point it, it was designed as you said for the car and and uh that's not a reality for a lot of people who are now living in those those kind of neighborhoods so uh how do we keep what's good about it uh while addressing the uh, the equity issues within those neighborhoods it's a really interesting question um the when you look at you need to separate i guess when you look at this you need to separate planning and architecture um you know, so the planning of suburban Toronto, of post-war Toronto, was in, in some ways actually quite progressive. Um, it had There was a big master plan, uh, particularly the metro plan in the 1960s, that really was all about making sure there were enough people to make these suburbs work. So in that sense, it was progressive that, you know, developers wanted to build mostly houses. People, middle class people wanted to buy houses. But um, 
this predominantly Metro Toronto made sure that there were also going to be apartments with rental housing uh, and with a higher sort of density of people to make the transit work, to make the schools work, to make all the community facilities work. Um, so in that sense, it's, you know, it was a progressive vision. Uh, people don't really see that today, though, because these places, as you say, um, you know, are just not... They're not occupied by the people who were uh, who they were intended for. Uh, the people who don't necessarily have a car, who don't can't necessarily afford a car, uh, and including many of the new arrivals uh, and the new Canadians who are landing in Toronto, wind up in those apartments. You know, they they remain a really important resource for us. Uh, and the question is, you know, to 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 keep that uh, the presence of those places and to to leave room for people to live and to fix what's around them. So, um, you know, fixing the architecture around those buildings uh, involves just changing some of the sort of the very one-dimensional character of those places. You know, you have a lot of apartment buildings that are surrounded by nothing but other apartment buildings and parking lots. Um, And to make those really work for people, you know, it really helps if there are, first of all, more places for recreation and arguably, more importantly, places for people to work, places for people to buy and sell things. So that doesn't necessarily mean making big physical changes, but just loosening the rules up a little bit to make it possible for people to have shops, to have hair salons, um, you know, to bring in community facilities and nonprofits. And there's a really interesting initiative that's already cooking called Tower Renewal, um, which is led in part by people from ERA Architects, that's looking at that, I think, in a really smart way. It's a, a complicated sort of challenge uh, in city building uh, and in terms of heritage, but luckily uh, people are working on it. In explaining the history of, of Toronto architecture, you, uh, you have one chapter that uh, look, sort of looks at Yorkville as, as an example of what maybe has, has been done right throughout the ages and, and this uh, idea of recycling. Uh, can, you, can you unpack a bit about what that means to recycle and how that can build a bridge between the old neighborhood and what might uh, become a future neighborhood in Toronto? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting model, um, what happened in Yorkville starting in the 1960s. So Yorkville first grew up as a, a suburb of the city of Toronto. Uh, it was on the fringe of the city when it was first laid out uh, in the late 19th century. Um, but by the 60s, it was you know, solidly within the city and, you know, we're going somewhat downhill. Uh, and when... First of all, the the hippies uh, found the neighborhood uh, and began to gentrify it, uh, which is what happened quite quickly. the new development that came in, first shops and restaurants and then eventually new residential development, really worked to keep what was already there and to work around it. Um, you know, to introduce, in particular, a network of courtyards, which didn't really exist in Toronto. Courtyards or plazas, you know, weren't really part of the the language of the city. Uh, and a number of people, you know, particularly some young architects with the firm WZMH, um, introduced a few plazas and courtyards that really gave the place a, what was at the time, a European character. And that still continues to work really well. Uh, I think part of the magic of Yorkville, even now, um, while a lot of the older building stock is gone or has been altered a lot, you still have the small scale and you still have that network of patios and courtyards and walkways that are really pleasant to walk through and to hang out in. You know, that makes for an interesting city. Um, and that happened because, again, people were interested in retaining the the building blocks and the basic layout of, of that neighborhood. Uh, it created a really interesting result. 
Let's talk about when that doesn't happen, uh, which uh, is uh, frequently a, a problem that we wrestle with. We talk a lot of, on this show about heritage. Um, currently, there are there are calls from some people to do what we used to do in the 70s, to literally canvas neighborhoods and uh, just make a note of anything that might have heritage value to list it without you know going through the the effort of actually getting it designated, but just to say that, hey, if you're going to do something with this potentially uh, heritage building, uh, we want this flagged, and, and whatever you want to do, you have to come, uh, and we have to have a conversation about it uh, so that under cover of night, we don't lose some of these buildings as it's heartbreaking sometimes to leaf through this book and, and hear your description of these buildings, and then it says, since demolished. <laughs> well, it's, I, I've, you know, this is, a fairly complicated conversation about heritage policy, but I think that's a really good idea. I mean, the basic problem right now with with development and Toronto heritage is that a lot of the growth is coming into a few places in the old city where people most want to live, and that's also where the largest stock of buildings that have heritage value is located. So the question is, how do you add a whole bunch more office space and a whole bunch more homes you know, without destroying uh, what was already there? Um, and because of the planning system in Toronto, um, development tends to want to concentrate in a few places. So it's not an easy problem to move in scale from a city that is a two or three or four story city uh, up to a city that is, you know, has four times or eight times the, the density that that has. And I think the answer is to really try and f- be in some ways more selective about which buildings we want to save. Uh, I think the city really needs to be um, forceful about protecting buildings from each period of the city's history and making sure that they're preserved in a really meaningful way. And then also think about perhaps loosening up protections on other parts of the city. So I think there needs to be something of a conversation about how we plan and how we build um, to see whether we can rebalance things to, um, to save individual buildings or individual blocks that we really need to save and perhaps be willing to give up a little more of the kind of the, the ordinary stuff of the older city um, to make room for, for, for new people and new uses. So, uh, you know, I recently tweeted, having leafed through this, uh, that uh, it's sort of like a scavenger hunt for grown-ups. Uh, what do you hope people uh, uh, get out of this book? Do you, do you hope they, they take it with them and go explore their city? I hope so. Um, you know, the book was set up as a, a set of walking tours, uh, and you can do that. I mean, you can literally follow me, uh, follow me and Patricia McHugh through the streets of Toronto uh, and learn bits and pieces about the history of the city uh, as you go, but not just the architecture, but about the social history and the history of business in Toronto. Um, but I also think that this sort of book always serves as um, this sort of book serves as a reference, and it's always going to be a, um, a touchstone for discussions about particular buildings. So I hope that this will get people thinking about places that they know and places that maybe are facing some kind of change to examine what's there, how it got there, what it's doing there, and, and how it fits into the, the larger picture of the city. Um, you know, I would really love it if this helps people um, find some stuff to argue about, uh, to figure out which buildings and which architects and which points in the city's history are, are meaningful to them and why. Because I think that discussion of what exists here really should inform what we're building. Um, I think it's important for there to be a, a dialogue between um, the way Toronto has built in the past and the way that it is uh, that it's building as we move forward.
Toronto's LGBTQ2S community seems like it's thriving these days. Pride Parade is a major annual draw. It seems like the whole city turns out each year, not to mention a good number of tourists. But for a lot of people, the way the community arrived here is unclear. Cries to depoliticize Pride betray some confusion about how the parade began in the first place. As well, marginalized voices within the queer community are making themselves heard, and efforts are underway to become more inclusive and supportive. So, it's timely to have a comprehensive history of this community. Any other way how Toronto got queer is that history. As the old saying goes, you have to know where you've been to know where you're going. Editors Jane Farrell and Ed Jackson can tell us a lot about both. So first, please tell me about uh, Any Other Way, How Toronto Got Queer. Uh, how did this book, this project come about? Uh, how did you find contributors? Um, and what, what was the sort of um, guiding principle behind it? We wanted to uh, really fill in a lot of gaps. I mean, uh, we all knew as, as people who had been around the queer community for many decades collectively that there was lots of stories that had not been told. And of course, people were quite familiar with the conventional timeline featuring uh, the bathhouse raids, pride, equal marriage, but there was just so much amazing, fierce history and voices that needed to be captured. So Coach House had the idea. We just stepped in as editors that they wanted to invite and put the call out to lots of people and got 100 pieces in in pretty much no time at all. And we also want to get people to think about history in a new way, to think about something beyond those usual stories of bath raids and body politic and uh, early marches, because there are, a lot of, there are a lot of communities in this city, this very diverse city, that haven't really sort of thought that there's a, they have a history. Uh, so finding people who could talk about that was really one of the motivating factors behind getting some of the people who, taught, who wrote in the book. And of course... A lot of queer history is hidden history. I mean, like I said, not as hidden to the people who are living it, but, you know, it's a, it's a history that was, you know, in, in dark, you know, back rooms and bars, underground basement bars, if you're a lesbian in particular, and uh, or even in jail. Or, or, or it's not a, a history that... Uh, it was easy to research in that sense. When you go back to the 20s and 30s, you're looking for things in tabloids to see who was arrested for having sex in a public place. That's, the, that's where you're going to look for the ancestors, you know. It, it's, it's elusive and uh, hard, to, hard to capture. Yeah, and as uh, uh, Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam said in the introduction to the book, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the LGBTQ community has, uh, has made a lot of advancements for, for all kinds of uh, cultures within Toronto, but it's not necessarily recognized uh, or celebrated. Uh, so this is maybe an attempt to sort of uh, give credit where it's due. And to pick up on what uh, was just said, I think that our relationship with the police, the community's relationship with the police, is probably one of the core uh, things that uh, carry through from the early years to now, Is that and that continues to be an issue, as we see with recently with Pride and uh, you know, different groups of people within the community have differing relationships with the police, but it is where you can find the documentation, which is because people had to be careful. People lived, uh, you know, quiet lives, sort of undercover, quietly in their own lives. And it wasn't all desperate, but it was not very visible. And, uh, you know, making a lot of this visible is uh, kind of what we wanted to do. And then, of course, along comes someone like Jackie Shane, who is just so extraordinarily queer. I mean, a, a, a trans pioneer in the middle of Toronto playing in the bars on Yonge Street in makeup and referring to 
herself as, you know, uh, someone who likes chicken, which was uh, gay slang for uh, young trade and uh, really kind of hiding in plain sight, if hiding at all. Uh, These were the uh, people that, um, you know, camp humor like drag and, and, uh, uh, you know, women dressing as men in in bars. I mean, they could be harassed, but they, they were also there, often, of course, reported in tabloids lesbian vermin plagues Toronto was one of the actual headlines but of course that had the effect of, of of pulling people together like now they knew what bars to go to to find the the woman who was reportedly handing out cigars when the cats had kittens in men's pants <laughs> and the uh, the relationship to kind of general public if you would emerge you'd be seen as kind of interesting uh, there's a there's one article about the drag shows outside of um, uh, Letros versus later it went to St. Charles and outside of Letros it was seen as a bit of a show and everybody was sort of it, it, it was a bit of a side show and people didn't find it very uh, maybe threatening. threatening but when it got to St. Charles and there had been a movement there had been sort of challenges it become more public in the media then the the crowds that that came and gathered we became really hostile really negative so so visibility brings hostility and that that sort of happened after the 70s from the 70s on right all of a sudden they they realized they weren't just watching a vaudeville show that they were actually uh, witnessing a, a community sort of come together and, and yeah, create their own entertainment something more than they thought it was and uh, and that that I think is part of how we've seen it happen some perhaps actually the bath raids would even be the more the more visible we became and the more you know threatening it was to some people then the more the response the reaction was it wasn't for their entertainment it was for community and being right it was an expression of self it was a re- you know a, a taking up of space that was imminently more threatening than cross-dressing for laughs right and that's not what it was it wasn't what it ever was but it could be framed as that by people to sort of minimize it and 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 and, and defang it but you know as uh, the, the raids continued. The vice squads, the harassment, the the, the jailings, and the, and the suicides that ensued from people's extended identities being, you know, pulled out of the closet unwillingly. Uh, things got very real, and so you know, it led to the violence and the pushback of the riots in, in, in the, around the bathhouse raids in Toronto, which are the seminal, the pivotal event. Uh, but then there's you know, a huge flourishing of queer culture that comes after that, which the book also goes into great detail. Uh, A a flourishing of, um, you know, various communities who sort of step up and say, yes, I'm, I'm queer too. I am, I'm here. I'm in Mississauga. I'm, I'm Asian. I'm, I'm trans. Like, you know, just, it's an amazing boom in identity. And uh, we always come back to to the bathhouse raids as a sort of touchstone or this, you know, um, this point of no return. Uh, but uh, briefly, what it, what was the queer history of Toronto pre-bath raids? I mean, you said you, you did some digging, uh, uh, even the laborious digging into things like the 20s and 30s. Uh, um, so w- what was that like back then? Well, I think it depended upon who you were and where, where you were placed, what your class, you know, what your class situation was and whether you were a man or a woman or if you were more ambiguously sexual, then people had a harder time, I think, uh, finding a place, a safe place to be. Um, so uh, I, I was involved with the body politic, which was nearly a gay liberation newspaper in the 70s. And we were always obsessed with history because we knew that uh, in Germany there had been this really, really active uh, both movement 
movement and community in German German cities, especially Berlin, and it was completely obliterated by the Nazis by 1933. And so we were aware that even though we were making things happen, making things more visible, that that could be erased. So I think we began to try to uncover some of these things, and it was often very difficult for us because uh, we, we were threatening in a way too, because lots of people felt, you know, I don't, I'm comfortable. I don't need I, I don't need you kind of shouting about things and being so visible. Uh, that was a, an initial reaction. That soon changed once people realized they were part of a community. But but the concept of community, I think, was was a it was a conceptual thing that happened before people didn't see themselves as part of a community. They they knew they had friends. They knew it could be they could be comfortable. And maybe they also had miserable lives, too. But the sense of being a part of a community was a new thing. Mm-hmm. It was like there was networks of people. You knew where to go, who to, who was, wasn't, where the social activities might be. Uh, but there wasn't community. And, and, and class was a huge factor in this. I mean, there was definitely places where, uh, you know, it was pretty rough and tumble. And that's where you might find, you know, there was often a lot of segregation back then in terms of gender. Well, and likely otherwise, but uh, there was women were known to hang out at a certain bar in Chinatown called the Continental. And uh, there was kind of an agreement. There was a little bit of light sex trade in there because there's a lot of migrant uh, Asian workers that there was an agreement that this was a shared space. And there was a a sort of beautiful detente that uh, kind of doesn't exist now or it was unique for its time there was also you know the king edward hotel was the site had a piano bar in the lounge in the lobby and that was a place that was very upscale often men would go with women like you know gay guys and gay girls and sort of appear to be a couple and uh but really they were there for to find each other and it's like apparently noel coward came and uh played the piano spontaneously there was a really known queer bar across the street was letros probably more mid-range uh, tavern that was in the basement this is the one that had the drag shows that were quite extraordinary uh, so, and there was, you know, just like the arts and culture was a world that was a little bit easier to be queer in. So there was, as and again, of course, as it evolved, it, Toronto had a massive queer art scene. But that was always, you know, Loring and Wiley, you know, uh, sculptors, two lesbians, and uh, with a salon, and it it, it was a. Uh, and, you know, there was this certain queer community in the civil service. These were kind of like the beginnings of sort of job-focused areas where uh, people could be safe, but small. And moving forward uh, from the bathhouse raids uh, and, and the sort of uh, cohesion uh, that, that the community found in, in sort of uh, in pushing back from the police at the time, uh, you, you arrive at, at uh, having a, an actual gay village, a sort of centralized area, um, that's maybe, uh, you know, uh, where people might be able to find acceptance. Uh, uh, what, what did it mean for Toronto at that time to, to actually have a, a gay village? Well, you know, having a physical center uh, where the queer community could reliably be found has been a great uh, asset for lots of people. Um, I mean, people who don't come from a country where queers are accepted, in fact, it's quite unsafe to be queer, still have an extraordinary experience coming to the village and seeing you know same-sex couples holding hands and it like they're the norm that they look in the shop windows and it's their books their their social activities so that's mind-blowing for people and I think it always will be important that way but you know personally as a lesbian that came out in the 80s I was already not that 
focus on the village. It wasn't everywhere I lived. I was a Queen West kind of gal, and I subsequently became an East End gal, which is kind of a bit of a dyke cliche to live in the East End. Uh, and um, but I was, you know, I've sought out more a mix of people like the arts community. But I've always known, of course, the village was very important and it serves a very valuable function to bring people together. I mean, the 519 Church has been an incredible hub for the whole community. Uh, parents, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, parenting uh, supports, uh, social supports in general, uh, is super important. What, what, get, what goes on in uh, Church Street is, is critical to community. The, five, the 519 is probably really important because at one point in the early years, there were, it was very difficult to find a place for a, a, you know, a community organization to meet. They either couldn't afford to pay for something or people didn't want them there. Um, so it was important to have a place that actually welcomed them. And even that was something that had to be fought for at the 519. I think the first organization that met there was a gay youth group. And uh, people had to think through whether they wanted it or not. The board did. So, you know, even those require a little bit of, uh, you know, battles. Uh, and then they become what's accepted. And I think also it's very true that... the that, um, Church Street has changed over time. It's, uh, you know, there's always stories about it ending. It's not going to last. But it's constantly evolving, and, and it was always more of a white male place. Uh, but, you know, if you walk down the street now, you, you see there's a kind of a variety of people, of colors and, and genders around the street. And um, it, uh, so I think it continues to have a different, play a different role because people can be elsewhere. People can actually have, you know, groups in Peel, Peel and uh, the Tobacco which they wouldn't even have dreamed of doing before. So I think that that changed. And Glad Day Books is another example of a place which is now just mm-hmm. moved to the street. It used to be, you know, it used to be on, upsta- Young. on Young Street upstairs, partly because it felt it was safer there, but it moved to where it is now on Church Street, uh, where it's very expensive to keep it up, and it's very open with windows and so forth, and it's become a real center, a diverse center for people that hadn't didn't have another place, especially young people who didn't have other a place to meet before so it's become a real center and it's right in the smack dab in the middle of church street uh, we did a reading uh, f- a series at, at, at glad day and one of the things i asked the audience uh, i focused in on the younger people who were there you know if if we wrote a sequel to this book and you were asked 30 years from now to write an essay about what really mattered uh you know what was important to you back in the day and the a bunch of them said Glad Day Books. Like, it, it, it will be, you know, in our future, a place that people really look back to as a moment when uh, there was a new kind of cultural hub on, on church that combined books and coffee and drinks and performance and readings. And it's kind of a variation on Buddies. You know, that was very theater and performance-oriented, uh, which is still there, thankfully. Uh, but it's, it's growing and morphing. And... It feels like, in, in some ways, to do this book was to be like a gay enabler, to sort of, uh, you know, wave the rainbow wand over Toronto and sort of reveal the way that we're so much more gay than we think. This city is flaming on, on many levels, and, uh, but people don't know, and it's, so it's a real joy to tell that story of how fierce it was, how radical, how badass, how, how it's a story of incredible collaboration and uh, working across lines, uh, straight and gay, uh, to, to get victories and, 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 and make progress here that cities nowhere else in the world had. We, we were one of the first, if not the first, to have protections uh, in place at, in the city of Toronto at the municipal level for people to 
hold their job and not be able to kicked out, get kicked out for their housing. And so now uh, we see that uh, you know the the queer community is expanding geographically, but also, as you say, uh, recognizing within itself that uh, it needs to be more inclusive for all types of people, be it along color lines or or uh, you know being more accepting of the trans community. Uh, where do you see uh, the conversation going with it within the community and, and that push towards a broader total inclusivity? Well, I think that Black Lives Matter and the uh, and their interaction with Pride sort of gives you an idea of where things are going and where they need to go. Because uh, I mean, this that was a really both exciting and divisive and challenging kind of intervention and I think it's made people aware that you know we have a lot of white people have a lot of issues to deal with around race um, and uh, <clears throat> there is a place for people not just who are white uh, and I think that in fact if you looked at the two you know frontiers around this work now it really is around trans and it is around uh, people of color uh, within the community and I think that's they're the ones who are taking the reins they're the ones who are going to be the leaders in this and some of us who are older are going to be supportive and allies and supportable we need to take a back seat to that because they need to step forward as they are and making change and it was ever thus this is exactly what pride should be and must be and has always been there's always been politics and pride it's the best part of pride so it, it if it were to cease having big deliber- deliberations and and uh, discussions happening within it, it would be pretty boring and not, you know, be evidence of a dying movement. So it's a, a, a wonderful thing, challenging for many and incredibly uh, welcome and, and refreshing to see it energize. You know, what's the right balance of glitter versus, you know, uh, real politics and, 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 and inclusion, uh, but uh, prioritization of, uh, you know, and the corporates uh, versus community sponsorship. You know, these are really important questions, and I, I'm really happy that uh, we're in the trenches with really important conversations like that again. And you can find Any Other Way and Toronto Architecture A City Guide at the Spacing Store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. There's more than enough summer left to enjoy one last book on a patio, at the beach, wherever. But this does conclude our summer reading series for this year. Rest assured, we'll still take every opportunity to talk to the many talented authors we have in Toronto and across Canada who help us understand the cities we live in, as well as ourselves. And that's the show. As always, thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your favorite drag queen, that guy who's really into brutalism, and your dad. Sorry, that was a different thing I'm supposed to call my dad. Anyway, please like, share, rate, or subscribe on iTunes, as it will really help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82, all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us at Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. 
visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Look for our latest national issue of the magazine, which should be hitting stands in the coming weeks. In the meantime, may you leave that light jacket in the closet for just another month. Cheers. Cheers.